Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Positive Thinking and the Meaning of Life podcast. My name is Marcus Freestone and this week's episode is the biology of depression and stress. Biology and depression is very much a chicken and egg question. Which direction does the causation travel in? Through my own personal experience, I've always concluded that depression is psychological, existential and social in its origins, and that the biological and physiological effects are symptoms of the underlying depression rather than the cause. However, recent research and thinking I've done has caused me to change my mind on this whole question. A large part of the reason I've always held this opinion is that I tried eight or nine different SSRI antidepressants over a 15-year period. As I've mentioned in previous episodes of this podcast, none of them did me any good and most of them actually made my depression much worse. Therefore, I concluded that my depression was not caused by a fault in my brain chemistry because if it were, then surely the medication would have solved the problem or at least not exacerbated it. And figures show that around the world, and particularly in America, both the rate of the prescribing of antidepressants and the incidence of depression have both gone up at the same rate, which surely indicates that that if antidepressants cured depression, then the more antidepressants were prescribed, the less depression there would be. There shouldn't be a rise in it. Surely that's common sense. However, recently I began taking an SNRI, a different type of antidepressant which works on norepinephrine as well as serotonin. That's another of the neurotransmitters involved in depression. And the result has been nothing short of miraculous. The constant noise in my head that has been present for decades, for most of my life, the self-criticism, nihilism, ruminating on negative thoughts, the catastrophizing, etc., a completely distorted view of myself and the world, all of that has completely vanished, and I feel like a totally different person, my real self, for the first time in a very long time. This has caused me to rethink my position on depression and biology and so I've conducted extensive research into the matter since beginning taking this new medication. And I've discovered a lot of new information which has helped to change my mind on this most fundamental of matters. On the quotes page of the website I will embed an excellent YouTube video that I'll be referencing in this episode. The name of the video is Stanford's Sapolsky on Depression in the US. Sapolsky defined major depression as a a biochemical condition with genetic components. This is to be distinguished from everyday reactive depression, where a real-world problem occurs and leads to a slump in mood from which the person recovers and goes back to quote-unquote normal. He also mentions in the lecture psychomotor retardation, 
And I've talked about this several times in the podcast, in my books. This is a major biological difference between clinical and everyday depression. People with this biological affliction are not staying in bed and avoiding life because they are lazy. Their body and brain is malfunctioning and their biological reserves are seriously depleted. I know from my own experience that when you're in this biological straitjacket, you cannot plan for the future because even your thoughts are slow, fuzzy and inefficient. Sapolsky says that the underlying factor of psychomotor retardation is a massive overload of stress. That is what is causing the biological slowing down of physical and mental functioning. Your body is fighting a huge internal battle that is exhausting all your energy reserves. Therefore, the way out of psychomotor retardation, influence to depression, is to alleviate the cause of the stress. So again, with the chicken and egg thing, it seems that stress is a cause of depression rather than one of the symptoms. Another thing Sapolsky mentions is the cumulative effect of stress and cycles of depression. And he said that um, normally people have a major stress in their life. They'll go into a depression, they'll come out of it, they'll recover and go back to normal. And those people are no more likely than anyone else to become depressed again. And then if you have a second major major stress in your life, you fall into a depression, you come out of it, you're still no more likely than anyone else to fall into depression again. However, it seems that something tangible and biological and radical happens in the brain when you get to the fourth or the fifth major stress event in your life. And that you have the fourth or fifth major stress event, you go into a depression, but when you come out of it now, your brain has been somehow fundamentally rewired, and now you are more likely to fall into a depression again. You effectively now have endogenous clinical depression, and from now on, you do not need a major stress event to occur in your life in order to fall into a depression. And this is the difference between clinical and everyday depression. Everyday depression, you need a stress event, something important and real happens in your life to make you depressed. Once you've gone through the four or five stages and you have endogenous clinical or what used to be called morbid depression in clinical terms, once you have this clinical depression, then you don't require a stress event and you can become profoundly, even suicidally depressed over literally nothing. And I can testify to the truth of that because it's happened to me hundreds of times in my life. And this was a completely new concept, a new piece of information to me. And I thought a lot about this. This seemed to be quite a profound thing, and I applied it to my own life, and I thought, when did I actually become clinically or endogenously depressed? And I thought, it's when I was 12. And I thought, well, at what stage in the stress cycle was this? And I worked it out, and I thought, well, 
I grew up without a father, and when I was three, I went to see him for the first time to spend a day with him. I didn't know who he was, and I was scared of him, and I thought I was being punished and sent to a sort of prison for something I couldn't remember doing. And then I had all sorts of abandonment issues with my mother as well. And then I had a traumatic accident when I was four that caused me a lot of problems after that. And then my mother remarried when I was seven and my stepfather was an absolute shit. And so that caused a lot of stress in my life. So that's four major stresses. And then when I was 12, my grandfather died, who was the last of my grandparents and the only person in my family I really got on with and had anything in common with. And then one of my friends died and I went to his funeral. And that, so that, that happened within, those two things happened within three weeks of each other. And looking back now, that was the fifth major period of stress in my life. And that was obviously the breaking point. And after that, I would become depressed over, you know, nothing or trivial things for the next 30 years. So that bears out um, what Sapolsky was saying about four or five major stress events can take you into, into endogenous clinical depression. Whilst I have by no means become a total biological convert, I have come to accept that biology plays a much bigger part in my own depression than I'd ever previously admitted. So the reason that all the psychological and existential work I've done on myself has not previously totally transformed my life is that I have only just begun to address the biological factors. Before I took the new tablet, I'd already concluded that many, in fact most, of my problems were physical or biological. The last few years, I've not been doing the frequent long walks I was doing 10 years ago, and as a result, my sleep cycle has gone to pot, and that has been seriously affecting my mental state. About six years ago, I moved to an area I didn't know. It was miles away from all my friends and any pl and any places that I ever want to go. And basically, since I've lived here, I've been feeling increasingly isolated. And within about six months of moving here, when I was 39, I had to buy a walking stick because I had fallen to such a level of inactivity and staying in all the time and not doing the long walks that the chronic pain had exacerbated to such an effect that I literally couldn't walk without a stick. And I wasn't even yet 40. And it's only now that I'm beginning to sort of come out of that sort of physical, physical debility. So I knew that I knew that I had these, these physical problems, chronic pain and sleep and lack of exercise that were contributing to the depression, but I didn't think that the, my actual mental state was, 
was being radically influenced by neurochemistry. Um, but I'm forced to conclude now, through taking the SNRIs, that in fact it was because it's completely rewired my brain and just it, it's transformed my life. Anyway, I won't go on eulogising about it anymore. <laughs> so what can we conclude about the biological and psychological factors of depression? Well, drawing on my own experience, it seems undeniable that I have a biological or genetic disposition towards anxiety and depression. But if I had not had the childhood trauma and emotional dysfunction, abandonment issues and so forth, then that inherent biological tendency may well not have played itself out. Our personalities, our thoughts, behaviour, our view of ourselves and our place in the world are not predicated upon any single factor. Who we are and how our lives pan out is determined by multifarious factors that interact and influence each other in a highly complex manner. So my hope, my belief, is that now the noise in my head, the interference pattern, if you like, and I think that's an especially useful term to use, has dissipated, I will soon begin to regain my former levels of energy, enthusiasm and biological efficient functioning. So if you're listening to this and you're suffering from depression or anxiety, have a good think about the biological and psychological factors that are at play in your life and whether there are some factors from one of those categories that you have not yet addressed. Okay, so that concludes this week's episode. I know it's a lot shorter than usual, but uh, whilst these new tablets have had a fantastic uh, effect on me mentally, they have kind of knocked me out physically, and I've also got a touch of flu, so I c I've not really been up to recording a long episode, and apologies if I feel a bit throaty and, and um, if I sound a bit floaty and thremmy. Throat, floaty and thremmy. Oh, one, two, three. Throaty and phlegmy. That sounds like one of those weird cartoons, doesn't it? It's the Throaty and Flemmy show. Anyway, um, yeah, so this is a slightly shorter episode. Hopefully uh, I'll dose myself up on um, hot orange squash and I'll be back to normal in a few days. So um, next week's episode is, he says, turning the pages of his book and desperately trying to find it. Um, what is it about? Um Oh yeah, so next week's episode is about the social, psychological and philosophical reasons for people feeling disenfranchised and directionless. So as ever, if you have any questions or contributions on this theme or anything else, please contact me via marcus.freestone at yahoo.com or the Facebook page. And I'm going to stop mentioning the comment box on the website because I, I still haven't got the damn thing to work. Um, but there's plenty of ways to contact me. Uh, thanks for listening. Please share the podcast on all your social media. Consider making a small donation or you can subscribe for extra content via PayPal. Keep the questions coming in on any aspect of psychology, philosophy or mental health. And I hope to join you next week with a fully functioning throat and voice. See you next week.
Thank you.